gentlemen, my guests today on Hard to Paint is a New Orleans legend. You may know him as Wild Wayne. His official name <laughs> Wayne Benjamin Jr., but he is the radio voice of Q93 and also the in-house voice of the New Orleans Pelicans. Wayne, we've known each other for a long time, but we've never really got to sit down and talk. I'm so glad to have you on the show today, man. And I'm happy to be here. We were talking about this for a minute and crazy schedules and what have you, man. Glad we got an opportunity to chop it up, man, because I know we agree on some things. We don't agree on some things, but that makes for a good podcast or good radio. We love basketball. That's the main thing. We love basketball. Yeah. And that's what this this show is about more than anything. It's just my love for the game. And um, and my love for music. You know, those two things have been intertwined. I've had a number of musical guests on, on the show as well. And um, and your career is that mix of music and sports um, and has been this long and winding journey. I love the fact that like a lot of people in this industry, like myself, I did not intend to get to where I am in sports when I first started out in my career. You're a young man that when you were a young man, you want to be a vet. Yeah, yeah. I went to Xavier University. Uh, well, I went to Holy Cross initially in the Night Ward. That was uh, be before they moved to the palatial estate over so, yeah. the, the college campus. But uh, I went to Xavier University with every intention of uh, being a doctor. I was biology pre-med. I'd gone to all the summer, uh, like, uh, prep college courses. And I was like, I knew I was going to be Dr. Wayne Benjamin. And uh, I knew I was going to be a vet. But, you know, fate had a different... Uh, path for me. And I, I, I'm a firm believer that the book is written. And I ended up doing radio just out of necessity because I needed an extra hustle. And uh, it ended up superseding my desire to do the whole doctor thing because radio was exciting for me. It, it was making me really good money at a, a young age. And uh, I ended up really being able to utilize my voice in a, in a big way that I never intended to. Yeah, you, you, The thing, I think that the drug for certain people like us, when you get into the opportunity to get in media is that freedom. It's like for the first time in your life, when you were in school, they told you what you could say and how long you could say it. And when you could speak, you had to raise your hand, you know, and then most jobs are not a lot are places where you're allowed to express yourself. You are part of the organization. You represent the organization. But when you get into these certain positions like DJ, like um, journalists and things like that, you finally get to use your words and your expressions and how you feel about things. And you came up in the era of DJs where DJs, and I hate to say it like this, still mattered because of their influence on what they put on the radio. Like it, I'm saying in a different way. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, Wayne. You know what I'm saying? Like before it became corporate, the DJ determined what was gonna be on the on, on for the for that for the time that they were on air. And I remember see, I was in um uh in high school when you hit the hit the scene, and I just remember how big it was culturally for you. Yeah, the nine o'clock props, and then of course the show Fat Fat and all that, which was on a on a New Orleans scale was one of the few shows that you had that was authentically hip hop. It was not staged like your TV raps. It wasn't. It was real. You was just talking to folks where they were and getting the, the info and having conversations. It's not really the same anymore. It's so corporate. It's so controlled. There are barriers between you and the artist, between you and this and that. What was that time like? So I'll go back uh, to what you said initially. Like there was a time, obviously, when you're in school, when you're in college, when you enter corporate America and they all tell you, well, if we wanted your opinion, we would have gave it to you. Like, <laughs> what? And I was really brash. Right. I was I was a, 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 a really wild guy, like for real, like. And, and for me, I wasn't really trying to accept that. So getting into radio, and it was definitely much more inviting to creativity, to being outrageous, to pushing the envelope. Um, it has become much more structured and 
the music is is uh, there's there's a thing called national programming now for music. So if you're a road hog, like if you drive from let's say Dallas to Atlanta, you're gonna hear largely the same songs. And it's not just hip hop; it may be your pop stations, mm-hmm. your country, your country pops, uh, which is a thing now. Uh, you're gonna have the same syndicated talk quite often, and that just became uh, a way that the powers that be figured that they could push budgets down by giving one product to the masses. I think that's what has been particularly inviting to podcast because a lot of people, they are their own bosses and they have their own opinions. They don't need somebody to give it to them. Um, A lot of times they're maybe in conflict, but in a good way with the talking heads that you see that are stuck in corporate America. So it has clearly changed. Um, I will say in in regards to what you said about the DJ not being important. Well, I'm, I'm, no, no, uh, you know what I mean. It's just a different no, level. I do want I do want to address that. Um, there is a, a a thing where in many markets across the country, radio is not king. You know, we're we're fortunate here in New Orleans. I've done this for a long time. My brand is very strong. Our station is a heritage station. We, we kind of, we're a little bit different than a lot of the other places, but it, it becomes tougher and tougher for all of these formats because of the options that are available now. It was a very limited, it was a limited thing. You know, we were the only game in town, you know, for a long time. And that was every town or metropolis across the country. But now you, you have radio and you have television, you have cable, you have, all your social media platforms, you have podcasting, you got streaming, you got, it's a lot of different things to capture a lot of people's attention. So it makes kind of everybody a little more even actually versus I I think the, the term, the DJs don't have as much power. We, we had all the power before, but oh, Hey, wow. it, yeah. And I, I think it just, I miss the, the, like you said, with the, the homogenization kind of radio with the corporations, I just missed the fact that there were songs. Like you said, you were a guy that was the first one to play this. That was the first one to play that. That stuff doesn't really happen anymore. You don't get to break an artist because you you heard something that you really liked, that you dug. And I just used to miss that, especially those late hours. Once you got past nine o'clock and yeah. you know it got a little looser with the songs, you didn't have to necessarily. I mean, I remember growing up in New Orleans and hearing New York hip hop late at night in New Orleans. And I was more exposed to it than a lot of my friends who lived in other parts of the South because New Orleans was so free musically in that regard. And I just, I felt, I thought that that was just a golden time for music in discovery of music. I got to listen to so much. Even before me, I'm going to give props to a couple of people, uh, AJ Appleberry, because New Orleans actually had one of the first all hip hop stations in the country. Whale 105 and some of those stations. Uh, also, Slick Leo, uh, who is a legend in the game, came from New York, came down, brought a lot of early New York hip-hop down here uh, and was DJing and scratching. And people were like, wait, what is he doing? And uh, I remember hearing those records as well early on. And I remember going on my mom's little turntable setup and uh, jacking up all her records. <laughs> Oh, I was in big trouble. Uh, but but I those days and I never back then realized that I would in fact be in that field later on down the line. Um, there was a, a different kind of freedom then too, because if if we didn't have the wherewithal to get these songs out there like we did, there might not be a DJ Jubilee. There might not be a Partners in Crime. There might not eventually be a Big Frida. Um, but we were able to really color outside of the lines. Shout out to the G-Man, Gerard Stevens, who's over at BOK. He was my early program director, and he was uh, he took a lot of chances on New Orleans music. There was a time when New Orleans music outplayed national music, like the record reps from New York and California, Chicago, will all come down and be like, wait, who are these artists that are the top of the charts yeah, down in Louisiana? We spending millions on these artists that we got in New York and California, and we not even top 10 compared to all the New Orleans artists that we were playing. So 
it was a different time and um it, it wasn't just here i mean if you wouldn't have had uh local markets playing songs like that you probably wouldn't have had a nelly from st louis or you might not have had Houston like i was big on that you might not have had a scarface out of out of texas or the ghetto boys um, it was clearly a different time. It's a new day, though. Like, streaming opportunities are there. The social media helps a lot of artists get their stuff out there, but it's so diluted. There's a million people that all have access, and before, it was just the chosen few, so it made it a little different. Before we get into the sports, I do want to ask you one more music question. Um, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. You and I are, are are about the same age. You're a little bit, I think you're a little bit older than me, just a little bit. But uh, by uh, minutes, by a couple of minutes. <laughs> but you know, to me, it's been a very reflective time because we, you know I've I've grown up with it always being here, and I've gotten to watch all those shifts and changes um, with the music, the cultural, the regional things as well, and and. Where do you think the you know the state of the music is um and 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 your love for it, how has it grown? And what were those real influences that drove you to hip hop in the beginning? So I'll tell you my, my first memory of hip hop. Uh, my mom used to have card games with her girlfriends. And uh I was I was super young, obviously. And uh they used to play records, right? They would play records. Yeah whatever the latest stuff was. And I just remember one night they were like, they put this record on. And I, I remember looking at that at the middle it was like blue thing with this centipede looking thing or whatever on it. And, and I'm listening. I'm like, what is this? And I'm, I'm young, but I'm like, this sounds like Sorrell gotta be real with somebody talking on top of it. <laughs> what is this? Uh, and, and then somebody said, Sugar Hill. I'm like, don't sound right, but I think I kind of like it. <laughs> and, you know, that was the early loops. They were looping records and samples mm -hmm. and what happened. And that was, like, probably one of my, my first memories. Like I told you, I destroyed some of my mom's records trying to, trying to DJ I think her. we all did. <laughs> uh, I just knew I knew what I was doing. Uh, and, and then, you know, I kind of got away from the music as I grew up because I really was focused on becoming a doctor and, and that became my my main focus. But once I got back in as just as an extra hustle, I used to call right. it book beer money while I was at Xavier University. I need some extra books and beer money because books were high as hell and I love my little beer back then. Plus I had rent and all of these crazy things. And um, it was just it was a very formative time in New Orleans hip hop when I got in. I got in with a guy named Davey D, who's out in California. I loved Davey D. He was a natural man. He he was high energy. Uh, he didn't go to radio school or any of that things. He used to DJ. Had a huge following. I kind of jumped on his coattails as a show producer for him, just so I could get my hustle on. My early job was Q ninety three. What would you like to hear? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, we ended up having this dynamic. I was in college. He was a street guy. Everybody thought I was white. Everybody thought he was black. It was, it was just, it was kind of crazy. And uh, we just kind of took the city by storm. Uh, and during that time, me and Davey D, we broke bounce music. Like on a Saturday night, we used to have this show called Saturday Night Live or something like that. No, uh, uh, the Saturday Night House Party. And uh, we, we got this record from a guy named Charlo. I think uh, he brought us the record and it was this guy named T.T. Tucker. And we're like, uh, I know they got a little wave uptown by the Magnolia and by, by Big Man's uptown and by Ghost Town Lounge in the 17th. We've been hearing a little bit about it. It brought us an actual record. And uh, Davey was the guy, you know what I'm saying? I, was, I, I wasn't the head honcho at that time and, and we played it and, and we played it again. And then we played it again, like back to back to back on the radio and, you know, boom, it, it blew up, you know, after that, the streets took it and DJ Jimmy and Irv, Tucker and Irv, all of them. And then all these artists, Miss T and 
MC you, Thick, MC Thick, Guerrero. You had uh, Ice Mike doing beats. You you had this fledgling company called Take Full, and they yeah. would put all of these records. This guy named DJ Jubilee with the red cassette tape, which went crazy. Then you had Big Boy Records, who had Mystical and Fiend and the Ghetto Twins, and you know, and then eventually had all these other little record companies, Tombstone, that birthed Cheeky Black, and, and then you had these guys named Cash Money Records, uh, and then you had these guys, No Limit Records, and like we, I was in the middle of all of those things, and it was it was just really crazy to see what was going on, not only on the radio, which I was a part of, but I used to do a lot of parties. I was a, a big time promoter and DJ crew. We call the Wolfpack DJs. First, we were called Gotham City Productions. Then we became Wolfpack, and we used to do all the big spots, Whispers back then, and Planet Hollywood, and uh, uh, Mr. B's over at Uptown by Xavier, and and it was it was amazing. It was an amazing time. Uh, I, I I told uh, my man Lito the story um, on his podcast, Alito's Way podcast. Uh, like at Whispers, like I did Cheeky Black's first party, like the the twerk something. This was the first twerk song ever. You know, you have Atlanta people lying, talking about, oh, we start. No, y'all did not start it. Stevie Black really started the first complete twerk song. Jubilee mentioned it first in a record. Uh, uh-huh. But she that I did a DJ competition that DJ Khaled won when he was a fledgling DJ because uh, he's got family here. Uh, he won it, took the money, went to Miami, got with Terror Squad. And the rest is history and another one. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to talk about those things because it was exciting. And then I was doing television at the time as well with Fat Fat and all of that, which was a trend-setting show. We were nominated for national awards like in California and everywhere else because we were really way ahead of the game. And the fact that the video show came at the same time when a lot of these artists were getting big deals or getting national records uh, on the box or on BET. Uh, We had first dibs on all of these candid interviews with Snoop Dogg when he went to No Limit, with Mystical, with Master P, with Lil Wayne. And Lil Wayne wasn't even the biggest at that time. BG was much bigger then and Juvenile was much bigger. Uh, you know, we were able to get all of these artists, you know, before they blew up and, and we gave people, you know, really some hope as artists and we gave the, the consumer and the listener pride and like, man, that's our people. That's our people before they were going to claim an Eric B and Rod Kim or before they were going to claim one of the West Coast all-stars. We had our own right here. So it was, it was, a, it was an amazing time. Yeah, I think, you know, I think New Orleans does not get the credit that it deserves in the history of hip hop because, you know, when you talk about migrating sounds and areas having distinct sounds, New Orleans, to me, in a way, was was taken off at the same time that the West Coast was. Because I remember when when N.W.A. broke, when Gangsta Gangsta and all that broke in 88, around that time, that's when New Orleans was starting to pop, too. And it felt like Everybody wanted to shift to the West Coast, but if New Orleans doesn't happen, I don't think the stuff, the same stuff in Houston happens. I don't think Miami gets what it got. I don't think Atlanta gets what it got. I don't think Mississippi gets the respect that it got with David Banner later, later, later. because New Orleans not only had artists, it had, like you said, it there was a business musical community here already too that knew how to create the machine to get the music out to the people and make it bigger. There was a legitimate New Orleans sound, but it sounded different depending on the vibe of of which record company you were listening to, but all of them were still uniquely New Orleans. Yeah, you had some producers that were really trendsetters at that time. You had Ice Mike who was doing crazy beats. Precise was doing a lot of stuff. Uh, Dave on the guitar was, you know, adding some thick, juicy bass lines. You had uh, Manny Fresh, who was doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes even before Cash Money. Um, you had Beats by the Pound, KLC, and those guys that were doing their own versions of of this this hip hop sound from the South. Um, we we definitely had our place. Um, 
I think the West Coast and the East Coast were definitely doing their thing, and they were winning because they were in bigger metropolis. Uh, the record labels were there, obviously. More per capita people in those areas. But when Biggie and Pac got killed, it was a wide open lane. Like, it was really a race to see who was going to claim the throne. Mm -hmm. And Orleans did at that particular time because you had the emergence of cash money and No Limit simultaneously, who became two of the biggest labels in the world, both from the 504, and both secured deals that you'll never see again. Getting 80-20s on splits with the label, the local label, the independent getting 80 and the other people getting 20 was unheard of. And it's because they didn't believe that we could do it. I take it. They'll never do this. It. be a tax write-off, whatever. Ah. Well, you got to realize, Baby and them was already millionaires. They just didn't know it. They were selling out the trunk. He was doing the same thing. They, they kind of hit their hand a little bit. And uh, you know, it was some slick maneuvering and it paid it pays huge dividends. Hey, but that's the game. I mean, they will slick maneuver you, so you use your street knowledge and slick maneuver them too. That's the way, <laughs> hey, you gotta take advantages where you can get them. And uh yeah. I just I, I just do think, you know, I, I I do wish New Orleans did get a little bit more credit because i think people have oversimplified what new orleans hip-hop is they think you know like it's i think it's sometimes just kind of narrowed into bounce music and that's it there have been lyricists there have been i'm gonna tell you that i was very disappointed that in all of these many 50th anniversary hip-hop tributes that occurred on national platforms that the south not just New Orleans, was not represented properly. I mean, there's no way you don't do a Master P. There's no way you don't do a, a Lil Wayne, a Birdman. There's no way you don't do a Scarface. There's no way you don't do a Mia X. There's no way you don't do an Eight Ball and MJG. There's no way that you don't do an Uncle Luke in, in Miami. Like, these were the people that really not only made music, but the South showed hip-hop how to make money. And All that's the, the real business thing. was coming from the South. Rap a lot in Houston, like I said, No Limit, Cash Money, Luke Records. All these were Southern companies that wow. were springing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a lot, a lot of brand Slip and man. slide, all that stuff. Yeah. All these black companies. Yeah. It was a great time. Um, but right, like I said, all these tributes in New Orleans in the South has been very, very. Uh, Overlooked, I'll say, because we should have been a, at the front of the front of the line. We should have been at the table on all of these things. It's very disappointing. Yep, it's like it's Outkast, it's Scarface. They, he's gotten, but nobody else, nobody what? else from the South has really gotten mentioned. Outcast. How do you not put Outkast on all these tributes? What? <laughs> <sighs> but uh, but as Bomani Jones likes to say, the South won for better or for worse. In hip hop, the South won. You know what I mean? Like the beats, the the, the styles. It is now the predominant style in music. It's all outbreaks, really, of what that Southern style was. Right. The Hot Boys, one of the most influential rap groups in history. Like, how do you not put? How do you not put the Hot Boys on every one of these? Even if BZ was at home, you're supposed to. Juvenile is iconic. This has probably been one of the best years of his career to come out uh, with uh, the 25-year anniversary of Back That Thing Up at 400 Degrees. You got Juby Juice. You did uh, Tiny, Tiny Desk, Desk Concert. was crazy. It, it was, was the, the best, best one I've ever seen. Like, how does he not get invited to every one of these things? You know how many asses has been backed up? You know how many asses has been backed up around the world? This song will live forever. They're, they're like, that. that's all for white folks, black, it don't matter. That song will live forever. <laughs> and that that alone, like, how many artists can create something that is eternal? You know what I mean? And that's one of those things that's eternal, bro. It's that and crazy. 400 Degrees is probably one of my favorite albums of all time, hands down. Uh, License to Ill, a throwback, was always one of my early favorites. It was a market in my life. And, uh, 
I said Good Kid, Bad City. That's probably three of my my favorite albums of all time. Kendrick Lamar. But if you go old school, like my I, old school, I go real old school because like my first like real lyrical the rapper that I was like, oh, this dude is different. Like I go back to Cool Bo D. That was my guy. Like when I saw him in the Treacherous Three in B Street when they did the Christmas rap. You remember that? I, and he did the lead for the Christmas rap in B Street, and he's sitting out there at the Django, Django Christmas photo po. And he and he does the whole verse for the, you know like he's the Santa Claus in the Treacherous Three in that in that scene. And I was like, who is this dude? And um. Because, you know, a lot of rappers were still doing the A-B format at that time. And then Modi kind of stepped it up. And then, of course, Rakim comes after that and LL and all them who really started changing the way it was. But but Modi was like my first. And then Public Enemy was like my biggest group influence because um, they hit me at a time as a kid when I just needed somebody to tell me it was OK to be me. You know what right. I mean? And that hit me right at that time. These these dudes was just yelling at me, basically, like, this coach be black. Be honest. Okay, well, all right, then I'm gonna be right. proud to be black, and that yeah. that kind of hit me. But yeah, and um, but I, I just I love the genre. I always find something new in it. I may not like everything, and, and we had a certain age, and I believe I ain't supposed to like everything. You know right. what I mean? I'm 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 almost fifty years old here. I ain't supposed to like everything, right, but I right. stay in the music, and I still mm. try to find out what I do like, and I think that that's 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 my love of hip hop, yeah. No doubt. On the sports side, growing up in New Orleans, obviously we just had the Saints when we were kids. Um, but were you an all-around sports person? Were you a, a guy that was more of a watcher? Were you? Did you play? What was your sports background? Uh, I played a lot of unorganized ball. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I played a lot of basketball. I played a lot of football coming up in the Seven Ward. Um, with the neighborhood guys, me living in the Seven Ward, right near City Park, but going to Holy Cross created a dilemma. Uh, cause I was on the bus, you know what I'm saying, and uh, I was okay. I wasn't that that good. I played a lot of sports, but you know, I wasn't like uh that guy until later when I I grew. You know what I'm saying, cause. I was kind of shorter and thinner then. I played soccer, um, and I didn't play uh, the organized ball. But I did watch a lot of sports. And uh, the Saints were not necessarily my team. <laughs> you know, I, as a young man, I always uh, like Miami. I like the Dolphins because they were the only undefeated team in history. So my thing is, if I'm on rock with a team. I want the team that has achieved perfection, you know? And then that was the time coming up when Dan Marino was, you know, really one of the baddest with the, the, the Mark brothers, you know, uh, that, that was when I really started watching a lot of football. So Saints were not necessarily my team. They had a track record for losing. And I, I used to have to hear my dad cuss a lot. And I'm just like, I don't know if I want to bother these guys. <laughs> Uh, I think everybody in my neighborhood had a team, you know. I had a friend that the diehard Steelers fan. I had friends that were diehard Cowboys fans, Redskins fans, Tampa Bay fans. But not many were Saints fans. <laughs> and then, of hey. course, that's when the bags came out and all of that stuff. It really wasn't fashionable to rock with those guys back then. I, I became more of a Saints fan college time, you know, and as Blue a patrol young era. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> like when Aaron Brooks was here, we would kick it sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, Ricky Jackson, obviously, when when he was doing his thing, that was some of the guys that Ricky Jackson had that club out with Kenner. Uh, um, some Maybe of the other club fifty seven, yeah, club fifty seven. You know what I'm saying? Um, and some other guys, the, the Saints, like Charles Grant. Uh, some of those guys I used to rock with pretty pretty strong. Joe Horn. Um. And I became more of a fan because, you know, I would see a lot of those guys and we were maybe the same age bracket. We might have been in a club together hanging or whatever, chasing the same women or something. I don't know. <laughs> it was a good time. Good time. New Orleans is also a special place in that regard and how we are able, like we give our athletes their space. 
Like in public, you don't really see folks here bothering pro players or whatever. We don't get in there, you know, in their space really. We at celebrities too. You see folks in New Orleans, they walking along. There's no throngs of people crowding around them. There's no running up. Somebody may go do it, but we do it in a very subtle way. There's just this thing of if you hear you people, you're a guest. You know what I'm saying? Like if you want us, you want us until you act out. And and I think that that's now, a unique thing in New Orleans. I will tell you this. The players of yesterday hung harder in the club than the players yes. of today. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And, and you were like the, the players kind of just about anything then. They're a little more guarded now. And um, I think part of it is because of the reputation that the city has for crime. Uh, and then social media. We have so many beautiful women here, too. Like, you know, them guys be like, I'm, I'm going to just probably stay home because uh, there's too much distractions out here in these streets. And it's probably the best bet. <laughs> um, when you finally decided or this opportunity was presented to you, um, how did this whole thing with the Pelicans really start to come about? Because I know initially you didn't want this job. Well, let me clear that up. So... Uh, some of my peers, uh, some of my some of my people under my tutelage, uh, like Rob Nice, you know, he was doing the in-house and he would, you know, be in the crowd doing his thing. He did a, an awesome job for many years. Nicole Collins, uh, another one of my 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 peeps that was kind of under my tutelage, they were doing their thing. And I, you know, I used to be like, man, at one point I wanted to do it and I said, nah, you know what, I don't think I really want to do that. Like walking around and doing all of that stuff because I probably will get distracted. I like to watch basketball. Like, I am a basketball guy. Like, this is the best job ever where I can get paid. You know, I can put my little spin on my wild wayness on deliveries, you know, my energy, and watch the game with the best seat in the house? What? Um. So when the job actually did become available – uh, cause they had a couple of things. We'll leave those alone that happened to the predecessors at the PA position. Um, I'm not going to say initially I didn't want to, I didn't think I would be able to do it, uh, because of the time that it, it would take to get to the arena and go over stuff and blah, 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 blah. But I was just like, yo, I do this every day. It don't matter what you put in front of me. We're going to win. I don't need to memorize this. Let me look at it. And I, I have a high retention. So, and it's because of all the reps, you know what I'm saying? So we were able to work out a great situation. And uh, they wanted me to do an audition. And I was kind of like, yo, do I really need to do an audition? It's what I do. But then they're like, yeah. I said, all right, well, I I'll come. Let me, let me do it. Let me do it. But I did not read none of the lines like they gave them to me. I did my thing on it. And uh, it worked. It worked wonderfully. Uh, it was it was uh, organic. You know, it was fun. It was energetic because I got high energy. And I think um, they had some other good professionals that I think went out for the job or whatever. But it's not just my delivery and how I do it. But people know my brand. And yeah. I think that very helpful in them making the decision. Probably was probably already made, but. Um, like you, you know, had to prove wrong at that point. I just like you would have had to mess it up. I do what I do, boom. And uh, so that's what happened. It's that not that I did not want to do it. It's like I didn't think the time uh, allotments and the time uh, that I would have to have allocated for was going to work because of my radio schedule. It is kind of weird because it's you know when you're outside the arena now and I hear your voice over and over again doing the repeat on the message. It's it, it is kind of surreal because again I know you and I've uh, talked to you and I'm like but now you're like the voice of God outside this building telling me to stand in line and, we're like, and that it's just gonna be a few more minutes before I get into the arena right and it's just uh, like if for you now when you walk into the building and you take that seat from where you were when you first started what is it you know what has that growth been like what does it feel like to you today does it feel like I know you, with, with your confidence, when you sat down, you, you said, this is my job. But now, having done it for multiple seasons, what does it feel like now in that chair? So I'll tell you, my first couple of games were a little 
Oh, Rob. <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the uh, feeling. So just, just to kind of uh, give you a little background, like I never anticipated doing this. But, you know, like I said, the book is written and the Lord has a plan for you and you just don't know it. But, you know, I had done like six years of midnight basketball under Mitch Landrew's regime. Like six years, not ever realizing that I was having some fun doing it. We were servicing the youth. It was great things, you know, keeping a lot of them kids off the street, giving them an opportunity to burn off some steam. Not only some good basketball players that came from it, but they learned conflict resolution a lot of the times out there. I never, when it was over, when when uh, Mitch finished his term, midnight basketball ended, and ironically, this came right behind it. So I was kind of already ready to do it mentally, not even realizing that this had been my uh, my G League, let's say, you know what I'm saying, before I came in. Uh, I will tell you my first couple of games were rough because of my passion for basketball. And there's a certain dance that goes on that you have to become accustomed to where you're not in front of your TV yelling at the TV. <laughs> uh, so I have to remain impartial. And I did not realize that the refs can see my face. But they could. <laughs> it was an egregious foul, and I was like, they stopped the game. I said, son, you can't do that. And I said, I was like, well, he he fouled him. I, I flipped the script or something like that, even though it was like, uh, it was it was pretty embarrassing. But I did realize that I, I do have to be somewhat impartial uh, so I did learn that. And and I learned a lot about just how to have control chaos sometimes, how to push the energy inside the arena when I can. I have a great team of people that I work with because uh, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that you'll never know. Uh, and and it has been it has been an awesome experience. You know, I, I never envisioned how this would turn out. But, man, it, it's good stuff. People are hitting me and texting me during the game about them having a great time or enjoying the music or, man, you got us hyped up and you see reactions on social media. So if I can just make that in-game experience uh, more electric, whether we're winning or losing, like that's that's what I, I, I like to do. It's kind of been the turn for the Pelicans in arena experience. Around the same time that you came in, things started to change as far as the vibe in the arena, making it more about the city. And I think that was one of the complaints that fans had for a very long time is that it was antiseptic. It didn't feel like home. And, and now there's much more of a New Orleans vibe when you walk into that building. And and you know there's, there are no places like New Orleans. You can go to... You, you should go to you can go to 29 other NBA arenas and I understand the NBA has a script and they want certain things to all look alike but New Orleans is New Orleans and New Orleans demands different it cannot be similar to everybody else it, the city does not that's a coat that don't fit when you try to make us like everybody else right you know it's uh I like the way that it has moved since I've been there and I'm sure I have a little bit of an influence on it. But they've made some good decisions, in my estimation, because you can walk into the arena and you can hear Jay-Z or you can hear Partners in Crime. You know, you can hear Rebirth Brass Band or you can hear Beyonce. You know, you're getting, uh, to me, a good cross-section of both. You could you could have halftime entertainment or sometimes in-game entertainment from uh, an artist that you love and know from New Orleans, in addition to whatever they do from a national standpoint, because they have some national entertainers that do all the, the teams around the country. Uh, but it's awesome to have had a big free to do something or to have a Rob 49 or Partners in Crime or Trombone Shorty or any of these different artists that we know and love. Um, and then the fact that I, I think they have finally embraced that. And, and it makes people more comfortable. It makes visitors appreciative too, because a lot of times they they use the internet to death to find out New Orleans this, New Orleans that. They may not get a chance to go to the quarters or Frenchman Street and catch a band, but you might see one at halftime at a Pels game or one playing 
on the ramp outside coming in. Like, and uh, I think that's really dope what they've done with it. Um, and, and it does, in fact, give the team more of a, a feel like they belong here. I think that's been the biggest thing is, is establishing that connection between the team and the city. But it's always been my belief that New Orleans is a basketball town. I know the history of basketball in the city of New Orleans. I would in that 90s period, like you talk about that 90s explosion, New Orleans was sending high school players to the McDonald's All-American game every year. New Orleans was producing top 10 talent in basketball every single year. And we had Tulane was popping basketball-wise at that point. UNO was doing some good things basketball-wise. LSU was doing some good things basketball-wise. And a lot of that was kids from New Orleans. And to see like that rep- that representation around the country that New Orleans is somehow undeserving of basketball or New Orleans doesn't get basketball. It's like, and, uh, you know, at Xavier, the history of basketball at Xavier, the history of basketball at Dillard, the history of basketball at Suno. That they, I mean, all of the, this has been a basketball city for as long as there's been a city, it seems like. Hey, I think, um, I think that just becomes the national pundits looking for our stories. Uh, and, and I think sometimes people just want to rock with a winner. You know what I'm saying? We've kind of had up and down seasons. Uh, let me tell you like this. When we winning, like, that arena is crazy. It's yes. electric in there. Uh, but it's just everybody loves a winner. I mean, it doesn't matter what city you go to. It's just how it goes. When you win it, everybody is rocking with you. Um, you know, uh, I've seen, I've, I've watched, you know, a lot of TV. I've, I've gone to a lot of arenas. I've gone to a lot of uh, stadiums. And, and sometimes, you know, when they win it, you sit like this. When they're not winning, eh, you know, people are watching on TV. It's it's just where it is. The one issue I do have, man, I just wish we had more televised Pelicans games. Uh, I think that has set the Saints apart for all of these years. Even when they were not a good team, you were able to see them every single Sunday, right? You know what I'm saying? Because even even when they weren't that good, they were still selling out, selling out games. You know what I'm saying? That you didn't have the blackout issue. And so I, talk, I, I get, remember we had to have energy and stuff, buy tickets on the, the last day before the sellout so the Saints I, didn't get the blackout. It was right. like, I, but, I but they think, made sure we got to see them. If, if the Pelicans, that's that's my one thing, like, and I don't know how that deal with Bally's goes, so I don't even want to dip into that. But um, uh, it seems like all the cities I go to have, have Bally sports, so it's not just an here thing. But I think that uh, if people could see more Pelicans basketball, I think more people would like the product. You know what I'm saying? Because although we've been a little bit up and down with injuries, we've been pretty injury heavy the last, I don't know, for several years. Um, <laughs> we, we got we got good basketball. I remember when Monty was here, and he had so many injuries all the time. Like, it was crazy, and they still, you know, was making the playoffs and what have you. But I just think right now, I think that is the one separating factor. If more people could see the games, I think it would be an even bigger uh, push and 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 swirl of energy behind the Pelicans. But this is definitely a basketball town. Yeah, what did you like? Um, just to get your thought, you saw in Phoenix, they they made all of their broadcasts local, and they got a local affiliate to cover those games. And what the owner is saying is basically, I've tripled my TV audience because I got away from the cable package because now it's local. Everybody has access to it over the, over the airwaves. Like if you just got rabbit ears, you can still pick up the games now in Phoenix. And he's like, so now I've tripled my TV audience. That means more of those people will come to my games, which means I'll make money in the building and right. they'll buy merch because they're at home and they'll become fans at home. They buy, I make money off the merch. The advertisers are going to make money because the local companies are going to, advertise on local TV stations and you boost your local radio partner too. So uh, I think that they found a way to, to really do it. I, I hope. And, you know, we know that, that Gail Benson has own, you know, had, has had investments in television before. And, and I think that, that it's available. It's just, somebody's got to take the bull by the horns, but I think you're absolutely right because the Gulf coast in particular, you could, if, if, if you broadcast it on a local affiliate and could get it throughout the Gulf Coast, I think you really grow that Pelicans fan base. 
Yeah, I, I do. I, I think so. And even though we've, there's been such a, uh, a interesting relationship with Zion, he, he sells tickets. He, he's a box office favorite. You know what I'm saying? Whether you like him or not, man, people will watch Zion. People will watch B.I. People will watch a healthy C.J. McCollum. His team has, has a lot of legs under, but people do need to see it. Uh, and that's an interesting concept that they did in Phoenix. It'll be interesting to see if they can replicate it in other places that were having those issues with broadcast. As we go into this season, you know, the Pelicans play their last preseason game um, here on Tuesday night. Um, and then about uh, eight more days before we get the regular season going on the 25th um, at Memphis, where's your level of optimism today? How do you feel about this team? And and really, in, in the broad sense, how critical a season is this for the franchise, just from your view, um, and the, the level of success that they need to reach this year? Um, so, this is my thing. I'm, I'm going to start with Zion. So, a lot of people, you know, have, have talked about his injury, the want to be here, and all of this kind of stuff. I'm not in belief of those things. And I always go back to the situations you have with players uh, like Joel Embiid. You know, he's a prime example. I think the first three years of his tenure in, in Philadelphia, he played 33 games in three years. Uh, I think this is just kind of uh, what happens in contact sports. Players get hurt. That doesn't mean they don't want to be here. They said the same thing about Michael Thomas with the Saints. He was getting over injury that you know, didn't heal as fast as he thought. I think we'll get a healthy Zion this year. If we can get 60 to 70% of the season with him, uh, I think we will have some great dividends. Um, also, I think last year a lot of people looked at C.J. McCollum and maybe thought he was on a decline, but he was playing injured. He was really soldiered up to me. I give him the most credit because he had – He showed uh, up. The shoulder injury and the hand injury on the shooting hand, if I'm not mistaken. On his thumb, yeah. He had that injured thumb. Like, and he still persevered through it because they didn't have much behind him. So him being a leader, I thought that was awesome. I think he'll regain some of his uh, his his stature because he's a good shooter um, and he's he's got a good basketball IQ. Um, we'll see, I think, a lot more B.I. this year. Uh, I, I'm interested in seeing the dynamics between uh, J.J. Barrega and what he does with the motion offense and if that can pay some dividends as well. Uh, we got a lot of injuries, too. This was Trey Murphy's blast-off year. I really wanted to see him do more because I think the threat of the three ball was going to give him uh, some more at-the-rack uh, opportunity. So we'll see when he gets back. I think the start of the season is going to be a little bumpy just because you have a bunch of players that have been injured or coming off an injury. You know, I think Najee got hurt the other day, mm -hmm. who I thought was going to be a solid backup um, for that second squad. Um, we're a little thin on the height. You know, outside of uh, JV, we, <laughs> we got a lack of the height. So I think it will take a, a motion offense like Borrega is talking about for us to put up points. We might just have to be in a situation this coming year where we got to put up more points than the other team, period. And I know that's common sense, but at the same time, I don't think we're going to be on defensive battles here. I think it's one, who can get to 130 first, you know what I'm saying, is going to be what what we see. We got some youth on the team. I really want to see EJ Liddell um, playing at that three and that four spot. Um, I, I watched a lot of tape on him in college. It was uh, disappointing that he got hurt last year, but he plays a little bigger than he is to me. Um, I want to see what we're going to do with Kyra as well, coming off the bench. Uh, I like his game and developing. He had that hiccup with the knee injury, uh, but he's quick up and down the court. Um, so we'll see if his if his jumper is uh, is good because he'll take it to the rack on just about any anybody. And I like what I saw from Jordan Hawkins in the last game where. He, he was not afraid to shoot the ball. I think he was the high scorer in the last game. I think he went for, what, 17. So uh, mm -hmm. we got some great pieces. I just want to see how that gumbo matches up when it comes to the season. I think we could easily get to uh, uh, maybe the number seven spot. You know, I think it's, it's, it's vital that this team not be nine or ten. 
anymore. Like you, they haven't been higher than ninth. You need to be comfortably in that six, seven, eight range this year. The West is incredibly deep. I understand that. There are 12, 13 teams in the West that all think that they can get into that top 10. And and I think it's good. You know, I think it's another year like last year where the best team in the West may only win like 55 games because the West is so deep and that, that one or two games are going to separate everything that start the first four games of this season are really hard for the Pelicans to be on the road at Memphis then to come home and get the Knicks. Uh, then you got Golden State uh, at home. And I think, uh, and then the last road game, uh, I can't remember it right now, but I, I, you know, it's a hard start considering Trey won't be around that, right. you know, and these other guys are hurt. They're really going to have to come out the gate focused. Hey, I didn't realize that the Suns had got Bradley Beal. Yeah, man, he looked good last night. That's that's another thing. You know, I think he makes them a better team. He's more energetic. I like him a little more than than uh, uh, Chris Paul at 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 the point. Uh, I thought we should have went after him uh, early on if the numbers would have been right. Uh, but we we will have a lot of competition. Wimby is looking crazy, you know. Uh, the West ain't gonna be no pushover, but it will be better if we get to that seventh spot. We don't want to be nine or ten. It was pretty disappointing to go out so quickly last year against the OKC team that we clearly should have beaten. That, that Oklahoma City team added some more length too because they got Chet Holmgren coming in this year that they didn't have last year, and right, that's a right. good young team too. So it's just it's so difficult in the West that I tell people, I said, the Pelicans could be a better team, but not win more games because the West is that deep this year. Um, so it, it, I think it's just, there's a lot of pressure certainly on everybody in this organization. Willie Green in his third year, he does not have an extension. So he's got a lot of pressure on him. The uh, looking for an ex contract extension at the end of the season, pressure on him to deliver. And certainly Zion Williamson after the offseason and everything and and those things that that drew attention to him in a negative way, he's got a lot to prove on the court that he can block those things out and be a professional. But overall, this it it, it feels the difficult thing with this team is that it feels like, man, if everything goes well, yeah, this could be a great team. But you also, in the back of your mind, you are conditioned as a Pelicans observer, fan, whatever, that that other shoe is somewhere waiting to drop and you're just trying to get past that feeling for once. And I think it's, and we won't get there till we get to game 82 and Zion and, and BI are standing up straight, ready to go into the playoffs. I will tell you this, and this may play a different, this may uh, change things. I didn't see the pressure on them this preseason. Like the media has been like, for the last three years, and I'm just wondering if it's been less pressure, will they overperform? Because, you know, when all eyes are on you and there's all of this pressure, like the media is relentless. Um, but I just wonder if that changes the dynamics of how they perform. Uh, do they kind of creep in below radar, put together some really nice strings of five, six games in a row here, uh, you know, not having the strings of, of three and four games lost, even if they alternate some games, you know, in, in deeper in the season when maybe they have a couple of injuries. Like it's it's just about getting that consistency and I believe learning how to win. Like, cause that's a big deal. Like I, I don't think people understand, like, are you doing the right things coming down the stretch, you know? Or are you making sure that when the other team is in early foul trouble in a quarter, like you're taking it to the rack every single play to pad your lead and make sure that that this other team is not getting a chance to run off points. Because I've seen a couple of those things where maybe it's been a little poor clock management late. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you're like six minutes in and other team is in foul trouble and you still shooting Jays. Like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, what are you doing? Like, so if we can clean up some of those things, I, I think uh, we could definitely have a, a surprising season. Talk to CJ about that. And, and and he said that's that's the thing that he's trying to get the young guys to understand that playing basketball and learning to and, and winning basketball are two different things. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get your thought on this, and then we can wrap. I think that the it, it, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I think certainly it's um 
they're, I, I, I'm a firm believer that athletes should benefit from what they do. I, I do. I, you know, I'm, I'm not one of those ones who thinks college needs to, athletes shouldn't get money and, and kids shouldn't have the opportunity to go pro. But what I think that the change in the NBA, the biggest change for me is that it went from a grown man's league where the dominant guys were, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s. It was man's league when you came in and you had to earn your spot. Whereas now, you know, it is about what you could be, not what you already are, because before you had to come in ready. Now it's like what you could be. And that changes how franchises have to deal with young people. And it changes how young people think, because when did they learn to win? They didn't learn to win playing AAU ball because AAU ball is about showcasing talent. They didn't. A lot of these dudes didn't come from championship high school teams like we used to. Used to like everybody that I knew in the NBA. It seemed like they had been a national champion, a state champion, something like that. We're not seeing that. They're not in college long enough to win titles. So you you never were a role player. You never had to fight to become a starter. And I, and but the Euro guys, the Lucas, the Giannis's, the Jokic who've been playing pro ball since they were 14, 15, getting beat up by grown men, having to earn every minute they got in practice, not really playing games, but working on the game of basketball. There's To me, there's been this shift, and I think in the U.S. in particular, we got to get back to getting young players learning how to win in sport rather than just have skill at it. I kind of beg to differ. Now, it's I, fine. I, I do, it's a conversation. I do agree with that uh, ideology having been uh, where we have been going to where we are now. But I kind of think in the next three to five years, you're going to see the opposite because of the transfer portal and the NIL deals. You have players that are making more money than they will make as a rookie in the NBA. So, I think it leans to them staying a little bit longer than what had been in the past when they wasn't making jack. They were in a rush to get out of there because they were getting scholarships, and that's it. You know, they couldn't go out. They couldn't make any money. Car dealerships trying to give them a shot. People would say, look, let me give you a hamburger. NCA smacked out. He got a free hamburger. He's disqualified. What? You know, it was unrealistic what they were doing to these kids, especially with the vast majority of these kids, especially African-Americans and Latino-Americans being lower income, they were not making nothing. You no. got, you sold it's exploitive. thousand jerseys, but you ain't make a quarter. And they talk about, well, you got a scholarship. Hey, that's, come on, man. You get TV money, you get merch money, players not getting nothing. Um, but I, I think that you're going to see a change. Like I said, you're getting more like kind of super teams happening with the transfer report, and they already starting to make some adjustments coming up on that. Um, but I think the advent of the NIL deals are, are going to keep a couple of players in there longer. So I think it won't just be the rush to the NBA. There's also some of these others, like what's the team ignite and some of these other like semi pro yeah. kind of, it's like, uh, 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 the, the, the kids maybe that don't have the grades to get in college or whatever. They just don't want to go. Yeah. So or, just don't want to go. Want to play ball. So we've seen in this draft, especially, what, at least about four, last two drafts. We've yeah, seen we saw, a, yeah, overtime elite and Ignite had both had a lot of players taken. And I think that, I think that helps the league. I think that helps the league because it's really tough if you're just kind of, guessing if these players are going to be good. And I think it's made for a weaker group of overall younger players because mm -hmm. we're crossing our fingers and hope they're great. You know what I'm saying? Based upon this sped up news cycle where you're only getting the hot takes on players. You know, people are not watching the games. If you want to watch the game on YouTube, you can watch the whole game in four minutes, right? You know what I'm saying? That, that's, that doesn't really tell you enough. That's what people are using as the benchmark for these players. So... <laughs> I, I do think uh, that was an issue, and it kind of still is. But I think there's a change afoot. I think you can change it. I, I do. I agree with you. I think the more we develop those other minor leagues and strengthening the incentives to stay for certain players in college basketball, if there's 
that that development, that period of time, it's not about college per se, though I think emotionally I needed college. And I think a lot of young people need that opportunity to, to be away from home and grow up. And that's really hard to do in the NBA setting. But that's not for everybody. Some people can handle the straight the jump and they should have the right to make it. But I hope we just find more venues because like any other skill, basketball is a job. As you said, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's people's jobs. And when it's your job, there's certain a level of apprenticeship in any job. You had to learn on the radio. I had to learn. And right. even when I was getting paid, I wasn't ready for the big leagues yet. You know, right. I, I started at a small TV station before I got to bigger TV stations because I had to get my reps in. And, and it's hard to take a kid who played one year of college basketball and put him on the bench in the NBA and say, figure this out. Because college practice time, as you know, in the NBA, Practice during the season is almost non-existent. Right. That, that was Van Gundy's big gripe. Um, but, uh, like, the NIL deals, too, like, think about it. You get an NIL deal, you got to make appearances at businesses. You got to deal with your attorney to get things right or your agent to get things right. These are things that make these players even smarter. And I think, and more mature. If you mm -hmm. have to things, if you playing with money early, like, it's not as big of a shock when you cross over, right? And I think that's going to pay some dividends, and I think it's fair. That's the big thing. Yes. I think it's fair because I just feel like so many of these players have sacrificed so much. And think about it. One injury, you might have been a balling kid since kindergarten. One ankle injury, you're done, and you've made nothing. But they've made money off you. So I, I, think, uh, I think in fairness, it's a good thing, and I do think if uh, – if these NIL deals keep getting bigger, it's going to make it harder on the NBA to get players. They're going to want to make the jump. <laughs> Actually, I think the older players are like that because, I mean, I think it's always the veterans who feel like they're getting squeezed out by younger players. So if younger players are staying longer in different situations, that's better for vets. And I think that the union, that's what they really like. Unions, the older members of union, they don't care about the potential new members. You know how I go. You care about right. who's already here. We got to protect right. us that's already paying our dues. And right. I think that ultimately it, it does, uh, it'll create a better product. I, I really do. Um, Wayne, man, it's been a pleasure uh, to, for you to give me so much of this time. Uh, I'm glad we finally got to do this and I hope we get to do it again, brother. Yeah, let's do it again. Let's do it again, man. I'm about it. Yeah, we'll catch up during the season at some point and see how the Pels are doing and um and, and get the word with you. But, but thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for being a living legend in New Orleans and beyond. And I, I, I hope you understand what you mean to people in this community and what you've done for people in this community and, and, and the things that you continue to do, brother. I, I hope you get your that you feel that you are receiving your flowers um, while you're with us. Because truly, I don't say that lightly. You you are one of the iconic figures in New Orleans. Man, you're making me moist over here, bro. Uh, no, um, I, I appreciate uh, those those kind words, and um, you know, it's been it's been a uh, an ongoing job. You know what I'm saying to to make things happen. And I'm not talking about a job as in radio, but. It's a job to make sure that you can positively influence people in the community. You know what I'm saying? I've kept my nose clean. Uh, and and I, I just am very appreciative of the fact that people have accepted me and let me do what my work is meant to be because I'm just a vessel. Like, I, I, I have the things that I do. I don't know why I'm doing them, but I know that there's a greater power that has pushed me to do these particular things. And I'm glad that I've been able to influence a generation, uh, whether it be radio or whether it be announcers or whether it be artists or whatever, you know what I'm saying? They even got people coming to, man, I heard your NBA 2K doing doing that thing with the pals. Like, it's just like, it's, it's so good uh, to be able to to be appreciated. And uh, especially in a community, that that's what means the most to me. So I still have some more work to do and I got some even bigger things that uh, I, I I have planned just that I can continue to service our community, but thank you for for the flowers. Bro, if there's any way I can help, you know, hit me up, and and I, you know, I love to work with you. All right, Grubs, baby.
<laughs> Tell <laughs> folks if they don't know how to follow you and keep up with you, how they can and uh, when they can catch you. Hey, I'm on uh, all social platforms at Wild Wayne. Um, and on air, you can catch me 2 to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday. Uh, if you play NBA 2K, play with the Pelicans, you can hear my voice uh, doing the VOs. I'm a voice actor now. Um, and uh, if you need to get a hold of me, wildwayne at q93.com for the email. DM me. Instant mess me, whatever it is. I'm all over the place. I ain't hard to get get at. I'm like air, man. I'm like air. I'm all over the place. Everywhere. You're everywhere. Visa, baby. You accept it everywhere too. Look for me at half court at all the Pelicans game. I'm at the scores table because a lot of people are like, I hear you, but I don't know where you are. Right there. Right the half court. Then of course. Let's Let's get it, baby. For Wild Wayne, I am David Grubb, and I just want to thank y'all. Hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, and uh, continue to follow Hard to Paint, and uh, continue to enjoy all the great sports content that we got coming up for you. Until the next time, this has been David Grubb. Y'all have a great one. Peace!